0: Great to have you here this morning, and as Jenny said, we are continuing our study through the book of Ephesians, um, chapter 2. I want to give you some home decorating advice. You mock. I I want to tell you what is the most vital, important, incredible piece of furniture that every home needs to have. This is like you can you could frame this you could make this like you could market this. This is so powerful. I want to tell you what it is, and and it needs to be in the center of every single home. And it's called this. It's called the dining room table. You must say, huh? Come with me for a minute. Imagine you're around the table in the center of a home. Imagine you're there, and there is two, maybe three generations of people around the table. Imagine the warmth. It's a cold winter's night and the house is warm and the food is to die for. Imagine that feeling you have as, as conversation starts flowing. Imagine the the joy is you kind of share different experiences and you're sharing stories and you're telling stories and and there's just that generosity on the table as you enjoy it. And you know, for me, the amazing thing is is that around the dining room table, people laugh at my jokes. (laughs) And it's Father's Day and you should and so must you today. There's a plan that God has for all of eternity. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. It, it really is one of the linchpin verses to this whole series. It, the plan of God is this, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The plan of God is to bring everything together under Jesus Christ. Things in heaven, the cosmos, and here on earth. The problem is this: that things are not that way at the moment. There is not unity, there is disunity, there is brokenness, and there needs to be reconciliation. I want to talk to you this morning about reconciliation, about unity. And there's a question I just want to pop into your mind right at the start. We'll come back to it later on. I want to pop this question into your mind. What posture do you adopt in your heart and your mind when there is brokenness in a relationship? What posture do you adopt in your heart and your mind when there is brokenness in a relationship? The dream of God to bring unity goes right back to the beginning. And we discover what the genesis of this was in Genesis chapter 1 to 12. In fact, if you understand Genesis 1 to 12, really you have the whole of the Bible sorted out. But right at the beginning, we see in chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, that created separation from God. But it wasn't only just separation from God. It was separation from each other and brokenness between each other. You see Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit and then after they've eaten the fruit they they realize that they're naked, they have shame and they hide and then God discovers them and then they turn out and then what do they start to do? They start to blame one another. There's friction, there's faction, there's hatred and by the next generation there's murder. And this brokenness manifests itself throughout history. It may be racial, It may be religious, it may be gender, it may be economic, it may be ecological, it may be political, brokenness, or any other form of brokenness. We live in a broken world. And like Adam and Eve, our natural response is to hide. It feels more comfortable, doesn't it, to hide through denial rather than face the truth. But just like right from that first moment, I want you to know this, God is seeking you out. God is always looking to restore the broken. He is always looking to bring all things to unity under Christ. He always has. He always will. And he knows that in order to have unity and peace between people, it needs to start with peace and unity with him. And that's why over the past couple of weeks, as we did the first half of Ephesians chapter 2, it was all about reconciliation between God and humanity. And now in in this part of the chapter, it deals with reconciliation between people. In particular, if you've got a little heading in your Bible like I have in mine, it'll be reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Or to put it another way, between the Jews and every other person on the face of planet Earth. You see, the Jews were supposed to be a blessing to all of the nations. Genesis chapter 12 tells us that. Where God made this promise, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here's the thing God gave them everything and it was not to be limited to and exclusive to them alone. He blessed them to be a blessing. They were to deliver salvation and the blessing to all nations. God wanted to use them as a conduit of his revelation and his purposes. But history tells us that they became self-focused and instead of being an uncontainable blessing to the world, they focused on having God all to themselves. And in the process, they lost him and created, relation, created religion instead of blessing. And they established an uncrossable Dividing wall of hostility between them and others. Yeah, you know, the the temple that was built by Herod the Great in Jerusalem beautifully underscores this. There's a mock-up model of it, and you can see the large structure at the back, the the Holy of Holies place. Around that was the uh, was the elevated court of the priests. That's just sort of in that sort of back part, and then in the front part of that sort of structure, you've got there. You've got the, the court of the women, and, and, uh, and that's all in there. And these three courts are on the same, temple, same level as the temple. Then you come out of there, and you'll go down five steps outside the wall, and then down another 14. You can see that kind of um, sloped part on that very periphery of that wall. And at the bottom of it, you can see a fence, a wall, a dividing wall. And outside of that wall was where the Gentiles could go. The Jews could worship in the temple. The Gentiles were only allowed in the outer courts. And there was this dividing wall that separated them. Now what's interesting is archaeologists have been excavating, and here's a sign that they found. I love it. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and the enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. They sure had come as you are sorted, didn't they? They were so welcoming. And that wall became a symbol of separation between Jew and Gentile. And as the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus, they were hitting a wall of religious arrogance, They were despised by the Jews, viewed as second-class believers. There was this dividing wall of hostility that had to be broken down. Why? Because unreconciled relationships are at odds with the reality of the work of Christ on the cross. And Paul is writing to the Gentiles. He's writing to the Ephesians, who are Gentiles, and it'll spread wider than that. And he addresses this issue of brokenness. And he does it in this part here. Now, what's interesting is he could have sided with the Ephesians, and quite rightly. He could have turned the corner and said, right, now you're reconciled with God. Now, I understand your pain. I understand that you are being rejected by the Jews. You must feel so hurt to be rejected by the Jews. You are quite right to feel that sense of rejection. In fact, I suggest you sit in it and let it let it." kind of ferment around you so that you can stir up feelings so you can do something about it. But he didn't. He didn't start there. He started with them. He said, you know what? Remember. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly He started where they were. It's a great approach. If there is a breakdown in the relationship that you have, can I suggest to you always start by looking at yourself? What do you need to own in order to restore? (laughs) So often some some people come and say, man, I have been offended by someone and here is the list of the offenses against me, which is why the relationship is broken. I say, that's lovely. What do you own? Oh, there was only one thing I did. Well, I don't care if it was one thing or 50 things. Own it. Some of us in this room, we hide behind it. Here's what Paul said. He said to the Gentiles, remember who you were. Now, Eugene Peterson in the Message Translation helps me out here. He just in such a lovely way describes verses 11 to 13. So let me read it to you. It was only yesterday that you were outsiders to God's way. You had no idea of any of this, no idea about salvation. You didn't know the first thing about the way God works. You hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and the promises in Israel. You hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now because of Christ, dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are now in on everything you have it. You started far away from it. You didn't know what it was. Now you have it. Now you have it, you can begin the process of reconciliation. He started with them. And then he says this beautiful word in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. What does that mean? The word peace, if you were a Hebrew speaker, you'd say the word, the word shalom. But you know, when we think of peace in the, in the West, you know, we tend to think of absence of conflict. You know, we think you know, if, if we go for a, for a week without arguing, there is peace. You know, if we we have a, a, a few days where there's nothing gone wrong in the workplace, say, oh, it's peaceful. We basically define peace by the absence of conflict. That's about that much of the picture in that word peace. What it means is this. It means completeness. It means security. It means belonging. It means a settledness of heart and mind. It means absence of confusion. There is no second guessing. there is no whether they really, yeah, you know, am I really with them or not with them? There is absolute clarity around belonging. There is this tangible expression of divine riches in your life. That is what peace is. Peace is this. It is being around the dining room table. Loved, accepted relaxed, belonging, secure. One author puts it this way, peace is the tranquility of soul assured of its salvation through Christ, fearing nothing from God and completely content with life here and now, a direct result of redemption. Well, how does Jesus secure Peace for us. He himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, verse 14, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now remember, he's talking there to Jew and Gentile with a wall of hostility between them. And he says, right, here's how it goes. By setting aside the law, he removed any possibility that any person, no matter who they were, could claim bragging rights for acceptance by God. Unity point number one, every person is a sinner in need of salvation. We find unity in our place of need. Secondly, he made one new humanity out of two, out of Jew and Gentile. He said, I'm going to take you together, and in Christ, I'm going to make you into one superhumanity. And I'm going to do that, how? Through the cross. You see, God brought back together those who were near, the Jews, and those who were far away, the Gentiles. All have received peace through the cross. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Here's what he said. You have unity in your need and unity in the place of salvation. It's found in me. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you're from doesn't matter what your background, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how good or bad or indifferent you might be, we all come united in our need and united with one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Because through Him, we have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. You know, people will say, I can't get on with other believers. You know, there's there's a a saying out there, I don't know who said it. It's, It's brilliant in some ways, but it's terrible in others. They say, I love Jesus, I just hate the church. You know, the church is filled with hypocrites. True. You know, the church is filled with people who don't, you know, do what they say. True. Here's the brilliance of it. We're all in need. We all come as we are. And the joy is that we come united to Jesus, and we have access together to the Father through the Spirit. There's no other way. Consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. People who say, I'm distant. There's a dividing wall between us. There are things that are opposed to us. Here's what you need to know: If you've come to Christ, you are no longer those things. There are three things you are. Here's a beautiful description of the church: You're a city. You're a fellow citizen. The church is about being a city. You know, Sarah and I were on holiday the last couple of weeks. You, you, you may be able to tell. You know, I'm just, I'm relaxed. I'm, I'm a little tanned. I thoroughly enjoyed the time we were over in uh, in Australia. We were on a little um, tropical island for a few days. It was absolutely stunning. We've come back relaxed, tanned, ready to go, and utterly broke, but that's fine. And here's the thing: while we were on that island, we went snorkeling and we saw these incredible coral fish. Anybody done that? Anyone been done that snorkeling? It's amazing. The colours are magnificent. And you look at it there, and there's this turtle that swam past. Then we were sitting on the beach. We saw whales. I mean, how cool was that, right? The, the genuine deal, not just like the little ones, right? The big ones. As we were there, it was, just, it was just this amazing time. And then the following day, we were sitting on the beach, and next to us on the beach, there was three people, and we're pretty sure they were from Italy. I don't speak Italian, but it sounded Italian, and it looked Italian, there was, there was all this sort of stuff going on, and they were chatting away, and then they put their snorkel and goggles on, and they went snorkeling, and then they came back out of the ocean, and their conversation was so animated, and they were obviously talking about, because we'd been there and we'd seen it, we kind of knew, but but... They were talking about, you know, obviously they'd been swimming and they saw, you know, fish and the big fish and the little fish and they were doing all these signs. And as we were listening to that in the Italian language, of which I am an expert and know absolutely nothing about, it was like I was listening to a foreign language, which I was. And I had no idea. I could kind of guess something, but I had no idea what they were talking about. It's a little bit like people who come into a place like this. Who don't know Jesus yet. And you might think, yeah, these guys are enthusiastic about what they do. You know, they, they laugh at his jokes. Hint. Thanks, that's better. Oh, that's better. Look at that. Oh, here we go. On a roll. You know, they, they obviously love somebody called Jesus because they keep talking about him a little bit. They. They care for their city. They want to give to that. There are things they do. But if you don't know Jesus, you, you quite rightly would kind of say, I, I don't get it. It's like a foreign language to me. But you see, when you, consequently, when you come to Christ, you become a fellow citizen and you understand what it's all about. you realize that there is a a common language. There's a language of reconciliation and a language of peace. You recognize there is a common heritage, a birthright as children of God. There's a common history. We're all sinners saved by grace. There's a common allegiance. There's a loyalty to God above all else. There's a common goal. There's the making of disciples and there's a common destination, which is heaven. The church is a city. We're fellow citizens with one another. The church is a family. You know, there was a um, defining moment in my life about 27 years ago when I married Sarah. And that was great. I, I, but you know the thing, like you know, you marry one person, but you inherit a whole family. And and that's all good. I mean like that. They're a nice bunch of people, that's fine, but there's there's this strange thing that goes on, or went on in my mind. Because, you see, I grew up, and I had mum and dad, and that was all good, and all of a sudden I, I married Sarah, and there was her parents, well, what do I call them? And I I could call them Mister and Mrs. Reese Thomas. Well, I did when I I started off dating. I'm old school. I like the terms of endearment and that. And they were Mister and Mrs. Reese Thomas. And then it kind of moves into that moment where I'm I'm about to become their son-in-law, and calling him Harvey just kind of didn't feel right to me. It felt a little too sort of familiar. So he became the only other person on the face of planet Earth who I call Dad. And as I call him Dad, I inherit a whole new family. And I come together with my whole new family because we all call him Dad. And you have been called into a new family when you gave your life to Jesus. And you, like every other person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, get to call him Father. And that defines you. And it defines you not only as a daughter and a son of his, it defines you as a brother and a sister of those also around his table. As a father... Let me just say something about this. It's sort of a little bit off off course, but it, it just—it was so much on my heart. And let me just speak to dads for a moment. On this Father's Day, as a father, just like our heavenly Father, you own the unity of your home. Can I put it out there as softly and as gently and as powerfully and as deeply as I can. I believe we own the unity in our home. You feel intensely any strife or rift in your family now here's the thing I think no matter what you say about how the roles and those two things function in the home and I'm not worried about that here's what I sense as fathers we are hardwired to feel those things here's what I wonder how many of us then as a coping mechanism check out 'Cause we say too hard. And how many of us disengage because we don't know where to go? You know, you're in great company. It started way back in the Garden of Eden. And it continues all the way through. In your relationships, men, in your marriages. When there is strife, when there are things that are going on, what what's flying around in your head which which pulls you out of the game? Let me give you a, a little example. We, in our marriage, we um, one of the things which I don't do particularly well is I don't I don't lead us, Sarah and I, in prayer as much as I could. I know that, and every now and then she'll kind of nudge me, and you know it'll usually sort me out for a week or two. And um, it, but it's just it's one of those things which is in there. And the swing there was a brilliant example of that. See, we were driving into church here this morning and we were just chatting away, and then Sarah said, Oh, I've just started reading Ecclesiastes. It's kind of that random book where you don't quite know what it means. You know, it seems pretty meaningless. And, um, yeah, theological joke. And, um, and it'd be kind of nice to sort of, you know, study it and try to really work out what it means. Yeah, you know, maybe we could study it together, she said in the car. Now, there were three levels of response to that statement. Deep down, in my soul, was that is a brilliant idea. There would be nothing better for us to do as a couple to sit down and study God's word. More to the surface was the, how are we going to find time to do that? How's that going to work? I'm not sure what what we'll use, what's the material we'll use. Um, Is that really going to work? All those sort of things. Do I really want to do that? I mean, we might find something which might be threatening. I might need to hide. Who knows? What came out was, oh, yeah. So on record, I'd love to. yeah I know that's what they said in the first service they said you're on record yeah there we go so, so by this stage next year Sarah will have sorted out the Ecclesiastes um, and probably me in the process here's the thing the church is not only a city, the church is a family. And that family is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He defines the church. The cornerstone, if you go back to a- ancient architecture, is this. It is the stone that is put there. Every every wall takes its bearing from that place. The foundation takes its depth from that place. The way that you build a building is based on the cornerstone. He goes on, he says, on the foundation of the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets. What Paul's meaning in this phrase there was this, those who delivered the word of God as we now have it. Men and women, here's what he's saying. Build your home. If you want to know unity, the place to start is to build your home on the word of God with Jesus Christ as its center. How present is God's word in your home? And he calls it a temple. The church is not only a city. It's not only a family. It's also a temple. And in Jesus Christ, this whole building is joined together. And he, and he talks about this idea of temple stones. And, and Peter does the same thing where he talks about us being living stones. Here's the way that they did that. They built, when they built the temple, which is the, the model of it you saw before, all those stones are of slightly different shape in dimensions, and they all fit perfectly. The way that they did it was this. They were out in the quarry, and they would carve the stones out of the quarry wall, and they would chip them away and get them to the right size in the quarry. Then they would transport them, and then they would be slotted perfectly into their place in the temple. Genius of engineering. Here's the thing. You and I have been redeemed. We have been saved out of the quarry, which is a place of sin. And you have been perfectly saved and wonderfully shaped. And there is a perfect place for you in the church. It is exactly where you are. When people say, I don't fit, theologically, I completely disagree. Practically, I know we all wobble around a bit, which is why we need to know about reconciliation. Because what reconciliation is doing is it is making evident what is already theologically true. And here's the joy of what this means in the church. When we... Come to a place where we are shaped perfectly into the temple. We are transformed. You see, we come as we are. We are then transformed so that we as a church, as the wider church, capital C of Jesus Christ, this city, this family, this temple, what happens is this, is there is unity, that it is filled with the glory of God. In other words, his character, his unity, and his holiness are displayed. And people look and go, what is that all about? And that's exactly what Jesus prayed. Do you realize that Jesus prayed specifically for you? There is a recorded prayer in the Bible where he had you on his mind. It's found in John chapter 17. He prayed firstly for himself. Then he prayed for all of his disciples who were with him. And then he said this, My prayer is not for them, that's those disciples alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. That's you and me. That all of them may be what? May be one. One may be united. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's the thing. We talk so much, and rightly so, about going and proclaiming the message of the gospel. Absolutely true. We talk about going out and doing good work so that people can see the power of the gospel. Absolutely true. Here is the third and potentially even more powerful message. It's unity in the church. It's you and I getting along with one another. It's God restoring what is broken. It's God taking what is fractured and making it whole. It's people in marriages and families and friendship groups. Putting aside, owning their own bit, coming to the fact that you and I come to Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, each one of us at our point of need, not being one up, not having a dividing wall of hostility because we see others as second rate compared to us, but humbly putting ourselves at the bottom and saying, I'm going to firstly own what I need to own and I'm going to come to Jesus and as I come to him, I'll allow him to shape me and to open me up so that I can be reconciled with my sister or my brother because I'm in the same family of them. I own the same father as they have. I'm in the same city I Speak the same language and I'm committed to the same glory that Jesus Christ be shown to a world that desperately needs to know him. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Question. What posture do you adopt in your heart and mind when there is brokenness in relationship? When you're members of the same family and city and are in Christ in the same temple with the same heavenly Father, does that change anything? Question Do you know the peace of God? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Question Are there dividing walls you have up in your attitudes toward others that the Lord wants you to bring? to him to deal with question men are there dividing walls in the temple of your life that are stopping those nearest and dearest to you from experiencing the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ what do you need to own Fathers, what do you need to change? There is a table that Jesus set for us. It's known as the Lord's table. It's a place of unity. It's a place of vulnerability. It's a place of hope. It's a place of security. It's a place of identity. It's a place of peace. It's something we do each week as we take bread and juice. And Paul in another letter to a different church said, every time you do this, examine yourself. I invite you to do that now. I invite you in a second to, to stand from where you are and to come and to take bread and to take juice. And for you, maybe the Spirit of God has just nudged you a little and said, you know what, there's a wall that needs to come down. Or maybe for you, it's you need to start praying with your spouse. And maybe this could be a great time to start. You know, I don't know why, but you know, for those of you who are married, what I've learned over the years, I know this from my own experience, and I know it from talking to too many people and I can care to imagine, that couples find it difficult to pray together one of those things what a great place to start around the table where there is absolute security so for you right now this is your time we're going to share communion together and after we have Tom and the team are going to lead us and we're going to worship him because ultimately we bring him glory we do it through our unity we do it through our mouth we do it through our prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, in the preciousness of this moment, would you lead us to bring you honor and glory and worship by being honest? Would you search us, Holy Spirit, and see if there is any offensive way, any dividing wall in us? Would you help us along the path to reconciliation? As we come around your table, Lord Jesus, would you right now fill us with your peace? Would you give us that gift that only you can give? Thank you, we are reconciled with you, Lord. Might we be a people who continually know the joy of being reconciled with one another. Father, this is our prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?